crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome to Watch Jerusalem. I'm Chris Eames and I'll be your host for today's program. And today we're going to be continuing our series on the modern identity of the 12 tribes of Israel. So thus far, we've covered Reuben, Dan, Judah, Ephraim, Zebulun, and Manasseh. And we've got six more to go. Now, six and a half, really, technically, with Ishaka. We've covered them uh, briefly on another program. But today we'll be getting into the tribe of Asher. Now, there's some really fascinating history about each of the tribes of Israel, but I will admit that going into this program on the on the tribe of Asher, I wasn't as excited about it. It's one of the smaller tribes or less described tribes in the Bible. There, there's less information about this tribe, so I thought I'd end up doing a, a shorter program on it, combine, combining it with perhaps another smaller tribe. But as I got into this uh, material for Asher, it, it really became quite fascinating, and there is quite a lot uh, to talk about regarding this tribe. So let's get into Asher, the tribe of Asher. We tend to, when we, when we think about historical Israel, we, we tend to focus on the nation as a whole quite a lot. Uh, but actually, Israel has always had very strong tribal affinities and tribal patriotism to to the point that there were many bloody wars between the different tribes of Israel. So as we've been asking in each of these programs on the series, what became of each of these separate tribes, the lost tribes of Israel, following their deportation by the Assyrians? And for today's program, what specifically became of the tribe of Asher. So here at Watch Jerusalem, we often reference our free book by Herbert W. Armstrong entitled The United States and Britain in Prophecy. You can order that on our website. And this book goes through just what happened to the lost 10 tribes of Israel, as they're commonly referred to, the lost 10 tribes of Israel. The book details how they became lost, where they went, uh, and where they are today. So let's lay some groundwork uh, before we get into Asher specifically. During the reign of King Rehoboam, Rehoboam was the son of the, uh, the wealthy, famous, powerful King Solomon. During the reign of his son Rehoboam, the northern ten tribes split off from Rehoboam's kingdom, and they became known as the northern kingdom of Israel, the Israelites. The remaining tribes ruled by Rehoboam, they became the southern kingdom of Judah, or the Jews. So while all the tribes can be referred to collectively as Israelites, only those of the kingdom of Judah can be called Jews, or a short form of the tribal name Judah. So most people don't realize this, they, they just assume that all Israelites are Jews. But in actual fact, the first biblical use of the, the term Jews is a passage of Scripture describing the Jews and the Israelites fighting against one another. Okay, so fast-forwarding in history to the 700s BC, uh, the ten-tribe nation of Israel was conquered, uh, that northern kingdom, they were conquered and taken captive by Assyria, and they became lost to worldview. And these people then became known as the Lost Ten Tribes. Now, man has speculated for, for centuries, millennia even, about where these people went. Could they be found in Asia, the Americas, the Pacific Isles? Where could they have gone? The Bible describes their deportation 
by the Assyrians only up as far as northern Iran, and then the record stops. The, the record in the Book of Kings stops. Whereas the Jews, on the other hand, they continue to be described in the Bible. They continue to be well-recognized and documented throughout history. Part of that is because they continue to keep the Sabbath. Uh, that, uh, that command is... Uh, is mentioned in the Bible as a sign, as an identifying command, uh, an identifier of the people of God, a sign. And you can read about that in Exodus 31 and Ezekiel 20. So as they do to this day, they, uh, they are largely known for keeping the Sabbath, the Jews. So they're, they're well identified, but not the northern kingdom of Israel. Of course, they, uh, they descended into paganism. Now, the Bible clearly describes that continuing Jewish presence in the land, even on beyond the Babylonian uh, captivity that the Jews went through. Uh, There was the Jewish return, the the building of the temple, Nehemiah's wall, and so on. But what happened to those lost ten tribes, and what happened to the tribe of Asher? Genesis 49 is a key prophecy, a key passage about what would become of each tribe in the last days. This is verse 1, quote, And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. And he goes on to describe the specific type of people and nations that each tribe would become, the kind of power specialities that each of the tribes would have based on the character of their tribal fathers. And it's really a fascinating, detailed prophecy of the future of these tribes, of their national identity at the time, the last days, just prior to the coming of the Messiah. So if these tribes are supposed to be on the scene in the last days, then they must be somewhere. They must be here somewhere. Now, in his book, The United States and Britain and Prophecy, Mr. Armstrong pieced together that puzzle from specific biblical passages and secular history, and he showed that uh, following that Assyrian captivity, the northern ten tribes migrated up into Europe and the British Isles. And as his book, as the title suggests, it focused primarily on the two birthright nations, Ephraim and Manasseh, Ephraim had been prophesied to become a great company or commonwealth of nations, Great Britain and her commonwealth. And Manasseh had been prophesied to become a singular great superpower, the United States of America. So again, the main thrust of the the United States and Britain and prophecy is on these two nations. But what, though, of the other tribes? The tribe of uh, Judah is represented, as Mr. Armstrong identified, by the modern-day nation of Israel in the Middle East. But what of those other tribes, those lost ten tribes? Mr. Armstrong doesn't go into great detail in his book, but he does say this on page 108, quote, We lack space for a detailed explanation of the specific identity of all of these other tribes in the nations of our 20th century. Suffice it to say here that there is ample evidence that these other eight tribes of the lost ten tribes, that these other eight tribes have descended into such northwestern European nations as Holland, Belgium, Denmark, northern France, Luxembourg, Switzerland, Sweden, Norway, Iceland. End of quote. So again, what of the tribe of Asher? This tribe is represented by the modern nations of Belgium and Luxembourg. So first up, we'll look at the tribal parallels, and then we'll trace the journey. So let's lay some groundwork. Asher and Gad were the two offspring of Leah's handmaid, Zilpah. You might remember that Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel, and Uh, There was obviously a lot of hostility in the household. Uh, Leah left off from bearing children. Rachel gave her handmaid to Jacob to bear children for Rachel because Rachel was barren. And then in answer to all of this, Leah gave her handmaid, Zilpah, to Jacob to bear offspring. Uh, 
additional offspring on her behalf. And so Asher and Gad were the two boys that Zilpah bore. So they, they, they are more closely related to each other than to the other brothers. But that's about the end of it. Asher and Gad, they're, they're not significantly mentioned together in later biblical verses. And their tribal allotments in the land of Israel were quite separate. Gad occupied the mountainous region on Israel's eastern border, and Asher occupied a, cl- a coastal strip at the northern edge of Israel's coastal plain. Now, as we'll get into, uh, Asher represents the primary that coastal nation of Belgium, while Gad represents the mountainous nation of Switzerland. So these nations share a slightly more related people, but they do remain quite separated. So Asher specifically, Genesis 30 verse 13 reads, following Zilpah's delivery of the baby, quote, And Leah said, Happy am I, for the daughters will call me blessed. And she called his name Asher. So Asher means happy, kind of a cute name. So let's get into the end time prophecy for this tribe. Genesis 49, as we mentioned, uh, the end time prophecies, what these tribes would look like. So what would Asher look like? Now, there's only a very short description for this tribe, just a single verse in this chapter. And this short Limited verse might have something to do with the comparatively smaller power or or significance of this singular tribe. Uh, but verse 20 is the, the verse in question, and it reads, quote, Out of Asher his bread shall be fat, and he shall yield royal dainties. End quote. So that's all that Genesis 49 has to say for the future descendants of Asher. Again, pretty limited. There, there is another section of prophecy for the tribes and for this tribe in particular, and that's found in Deuteronomy 33, and this does have a little more detail. But for that primary Genesis 49 passage, this is all that we have. So taking it very literally, we have coming from end time Asher, fat bread and royal dainties. And other translations render the verse a little more metaphorically. Quote uh, from the New Living Translation, Asher will dine on rich foods and produce food fit for kings. This is from the, the Christian Standard Bible. Asher's food will be rich and he will produce royal delicacies. And this is from the New International Version. Uh, version. Asher's food will be rich. He will provide delic- delicacies fit for a king. So this verse is clear. End time Asher would be known particularly for food, rich food, dainties, as, as one translation bears out, delicacies, royal foods, etc. What modern day nation best fits the bill? There is, again, there isn't much to go on based on this small verse. But when you look at it, uh, when you step back and look at it, what is a, a nation that does fit this bill that's primarily only known for food, for, for delicacies, for dainties? We've briefly mentioned from that book, The United States and Britain and Prophecy, that this tribe is to be found uh, having migrated into Western Europe. And we've covered how the French are the tribe of Reuben. Uh, we've done an earlier podcast on that, how the Dutch are the tribe of Zebulun, Britain is Ephraim, Germany is Assyria, etc., etc. So besides all these, and in fact over and above all of these others, who fits the bill the best? It has to be Belgium. Belgium fits this verse surely like no other, no other nation. And there are other Asherite verses that also match Belgium in different ways. But this one specifically, this primary passage in Genesis 49, identifying it only with food, really, these delicacies, dainties, rich, rich food. And Belgium is the mecca, not of of food in general, not about mass food production, but Belgium is the mecca of delicacies, of rich foods, of fine foods, of royal 
foods. And this is the thing that small anti-masher is known for, as per Genesis 49. And this is the thing that modern-day Belgium is known for. It might be a fun challenge to go around and ask Americans or Brits or Russians or whomever what Belgian Belgium is known for. What do you think when you think Belgium? And a guarantee, first thing will be food. Pretty sure the first, perhaps the only response will be fine food. It, it's pretty remarkable that this is the primary standout item that Jacob chooses to highlight. And it's certainly the standout thing about Belgium. Now, you can just type into an internet search. I did this. What is Belgium known for? And you'll get exactly that. Specialty foods. Belgian chocolate. Belgian waffles. Belgian beer. Belgian bread. What about something that we're all familiar with? A pretty famous delicacy, the French fry. French fries, fries, potato chips, depending on where you come from, whatever you call it. Even these are thought to have originated in Belgium, in French-speaking Belgium. Chocolate really was, in, in centuries past, a currency of royalty, a royal delicacy. And it's pretty remarkable that little Belgium, little Belgium in this world, has been renowned as the capital of fine chocolate, the capital of chocolate. And perhaps the only other place that would come close is uh, Swiss chocolate, Switzerland. And, well, there you have Ash's brother, Gad. But Belgium has been uh, the mecca, the, the capital for chocolate, and it's been associated with the stuff since the early 1600s, if not earlier. Belgium, little Belgium again, is home to over 2,000 chocolate shops, chocolatiers in the country, and it has the world's biggest chocolate factory. It exports more than 400,000 tons of the stuff each year for a turnover of some 4 billion euros. Royal, royal delicacy? I should think so. You've got, as another example, Belgian beer. Belgium, uh, Belgian beer is another internationally renowned delicacy, you could call it. The, the country produces over 2,500 different types of beer. Again, remarkable for only a small nation of only 11.5 million people. So it has the highest number of beer companies per capita. And Belgium's company, uh, uh, I'm probably going to butcher this, Anheuser-Busch, is the world's largest brewing company by far with a 30% market share of global volume beer sales. Again, little Belgium. Even taking Genesis 49 verse 20 on its most literal terms, quote, out of Asher his bread shall be fat. That's, that's translated most often uh, metaphorically as rich food, um, bread signifying food and fat signifying richness, rich food. But even taking it on its most literal terms, fat bread. France is famous for bread. But those are the baguettes, the, the, the long, skinny loaves, whereas Belgium, on the other hand, is famous for literally fat bread, large, fat loaves. Okay, so before we move on from this passage, uh, it, it also indicates Asherite royalty, talks about royal dainties, an indication here of royalty. And that's certainly the case with Belgium, which is ruled by a constitutional monarchy. All right, on to the next primary passage about Asher. Again, Genesis 49 being the main passage aimed at the last days, what the tribes would look like in the last days. And the primary identifier here is rich foods and delicacies. Just, just from a, a plain uh, identifying marker of this tribe. But here in, in this next passage, Deuteronomy 33, we read a little bit more, evidently along these same lines, and also including other details about Asher. This is what verses 24 to 25 of Deuteronomy 33 read, quote, And of Asher he said, this is Moses talking, 
Let Asher be blessed with children. Let him be acceptable to his brethren, and let him dip his foot in oil. Thy shoes shall be iron and brass, and as thy days, so shall thy strength be. Okay, so here we get into something rather peculiar and unique about Belgium. We read of a foot dipped in oil, shoes in iron and brass. Asher is described with proverbial feet dipped in various things. So before we go into the specifics of this, let's step back a little bit. Belgium has always been a rather peaceable state. Of course, it's been invaded quite a lot, uh, but it, it hasn't sought to become an empire to, to conquer other nations around it like, like that, not like, not like France or Britain or Germany. But there was one massive random nation in the middle of Africa that the Belgian king of the mid-1800s, Leopold II, King Leopold II, uh, this, this land that he had a sudden real urge to rule, and that was the Congo or, or what is now known as the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So King Leopold had this, this unusual strong desire to establish a colony for Belgium. And the Congo Basin, uh, making up a large part of Central Africa, the Congo Basin was largely unclaimed and unexplored. And thanks to exploration work done by the explorer Hen- Henry Morton Stanley, uh, the, and the successful rush to establish trade posts, King Leopold was recognized in Europe as ruler of nearly one million square miles of territory. That's roughly 76 times the size of Belgium, and it was pretty much handed over to him at a Berlin conference. Here you go, one million square miles of territory, 76 times the size of Belgium. And this territory initially became known as the Congo Free State. It was later annexed by Belgium in 1908, and it was renamed the Belgian Congo. And it was secured, really, without, without a war, without, without struggle, as, with, uh, as opposed to other nations with, with growing an empire. This colony was different. And what did this Congo territory become for Belgium? It became a mass mining industry. So in past programs, we've talked about blessings that were prophesied to come on Israel, uh, but that were withheld for a prophesied 2,520 years. America and Britain receiving those blessings. Uh, Massive territorial expansion in the 19th century. Uh, when those blessings, when that prophesied withholding period came into effect. You can check out our episodes discussing that at watchjerusalem.co.il. And so is it coincidence that little Belgium essentially did the same, that same century suddenly exploding in growth, expanding territorially 76 times their nation's size? So Belgium, without much of a fight, here you go, this massive mining territory, the Katanga province of the Belgian Congo. It became one of the most important copper-producing areas in the world, and it catapulted Belgium into being one of the world's most important exporters of copper, Little Belgium. In the 1950s, the Congo became the world's fourth largest producer of copper, and copper uh, if you know anything about about metals, about metals and minerals, copper, of course, is the primary ingredient, together with zinc, for making brass. Back to Deuteronomy 33, verse 25. Here we read of Asher, thy shoes shall be iron and brass. Elsewhere, Bible language describes feet stretching across the sea and across countries, and certainly the same can be said for Belgium, stretching uh, across its foot and planting it essentially in the Congo, a shoe of brass. Now, the Katanga province was primarily mined for copper, but it was also mined for, for zinc, that other important ingredient to make brass, 
And it was also uh, uh, rich in a myriad of other minerals such as cobalt, uh, tin, uranium. But then the same could also be said uh, in, in smaller part, obviously, for the homeland of Belgium itself. The Wallonia region of Belgium is known to be rich in iron, and it's been uh, mined extensively for that, for iron, uh, coal as well. And in the, the Middle Ages, Wallonia was a European center for iron and brass work. There you go, iron and brass the two uh, metals mentioned prophesied of the nation. Uh, now, the, the Belgian Walloons, uh, they were renowned for their metalwork, even settling abroad to work in iron mining and in production. And as incredible as it may seem, Belgium was initially the second leading nation behind Britain in the Industrial, industrial Revolution. And this metal and coal industry of Wallonia meant that Belgium led the way for continental Europe in that industrial revolution. Again, little Belgium, leaving the other much more uh, larger and significant countries, Netherlands, France, leaving them in the dust. So again, a nation with shoes of iron and brass. Iron and brass, quite literally, beneath their feet. But that peculiar acquisition of the Congo, it it didn't just provide precious uh, metals, precious minerals. Again, Deuteronomy 33 verse 24, we read of Asher, let him dip his foot in oil. Again, the foot, and this time in oil. And what do you know, the Belgian Congo provided an abundant supply of palm oil for Belgium. Uh, Here are a couple of stats. In in 1914, uh, so earlier on in the production of palm oil, uh, for 1914, it was at about 2,500 tons. But by 1957, production reached a staggering 230,000 tons of the stuff. 230,000 tons of palm oil. And by the end of the 1950s, the Belgian Congo was the sixth biggest producer of palm oil in the world. Again, all belonging to little Belgium, little Asher. Again, that passage of scripture, let him dip his foot in oil, as the scripture reads. So this palm oil, of course, is a primary ingredient in in numerous foods, different chocolates, while we're on the subject. It's it's an important ingredient in various cleaning products and cosmetics. You could say uh, royal dainties. And even besides palm oil, the, the Belgian Congo played an important part of Belgium's chocolate industry. The, the, the Congo territory provided a significant export of cocoa. So it's pretty incredible history. You have tiny little Belgium and the sudden peculiar and driving desire of King Leopold II for a Belgian colony in Africa. And I read about that strange pressing desire of his in a biography for that explorer, Henry Henry Morton Stanley, whom the king hired uh, to help uh, mark out the, the, the territory and to help explore it for him. So where did that odd pressing urgency to claim land for little Belgium come from? And it really was urgency, if you read that biography, if you read the history of it, this real pressing desire to set up this this huge colony uh, in Africa. Where did that come from? Where did that desire come from? And it virtually fell into King Leopold II's lap. It, It proved invaluable for producing specifically metals, copper, zinc, brass, and oil for Belgium, just as described in Moses' prophecy for Asher in Deuteronomy 33. So before we move on from this passage, a note about verse 24. Young's literal translation reads, quote, And of Asher he said, Blessed with sons is Asher, let him be accepted by his brethren, by his brothers, let him be accepted. 
Another peculiar statement. Let him be acceptable to his brethren. Other translations read, let him be favored. This could imply that Asher hadn't been uh, perhaps considered a smaller or lesser tribe, but they have received favor. Again, not a warring imperialist nation taking it by force. They were essentially given their colony, given the, the Belgian Congo. They were given their independence. In, in World War I, the war cry among the, their brothers, their brethren, the British and the Americans, the war cry was to save poor little Belgium. And we also have, the Bel- uh, we have Belgium being given the seat of the European Parliament. Uh, the capital, the headquarters there, uh, choosing, accepting, favoring, you could say, the small, non-militaristic nation among fellow Israelite and Gentile tribes. So we have Belgium, a small, happy, peaceable, wealthy people, in some ways royal people, uh, known primarily for food, delicacies, Dainties, as the the King James Version reads, but also with significant mining operations. Having had significant mining operations, copper, brasswork, iron, oil. So the primary focus of this podcast, of course, is Belgium, but also Little Luxembourg. Uh, Bordering Belgium uh, is also a part of this tribe of Asher, a directly related people. And Luxembourg, too, we won't go into too much detail for Luxembourg, but Luxembourg fits with these descriptions. An incredibly wealthy population. Uh, in fact, Luxembourg is the second wealthiest nation in the world per capita. Uh, Luxembourg's main economy is in iron and steel making. Luxembourg made up a part of the uh, ancient Celtic Belge province uh, during Roman times. So they're part of the same tribe here that we're discussing, Asher, Belgium, and Luxembourg. So what other biblical links do we have for this tribe? And when the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness, each tribe had a notable prince over them, the prince of Asher, as per Numbers 34, verse 27, he was a man named Achiehud, son of Shlomi. So Achiehud means brother of the Jews. And both of these names really fit quite well with Asher, with Belgium. Belgium's notable for having a large Jewish population, uh, Achiehud, meaning brother of the Jews, and uh, especially before World War II, they had quite a large J- Jewish population, numbering about 70,000. And today, it's still quite large, comparatively speaking. There's around 30,000 Jews that live in Belgium, and Antwerp is home to one of the largest single communities of Jews in all of Europe. Uh, and it's one of the last places where Yiddish is the primary language. So you could say that Belgium is a brother of the Jews in more ways than one. And the name of this Prince of Asher, that the name of his father, Achihud's father, is Shlomi. And of course, this fits too, because Shlomi means peaceful. Again, Asher wasn't a particularly violent tribe like many of the others were. So each of these marching tribes had a banner, and what was depicted on these tribal banners isn't recorded in the Bible, but according to Jewish tradition, uh, the tribe of Asher's banner had an olive tree on it. And obviously this is a connection, again, with food and oil, as described uh, in Genesis 49, Deuteronomy 33. But it's also, again, a famous symbol for peace, befitting the tribe. And again, another reason why it was diplomatically chosen to be the seat of the European Union. Now, there isn't really any significant, unique biblical event that's later highlighted in relation to the tribe of Asher or to any specific Asherite individual. Again, that indicates the more minor uh, nature of the tribe. There is one brief reference during the time of the judges. The Asherites were condemned by the prophetess Deborah, uh, because they failed to come and help the Israelites in, in shaking off the bondage of the Canaanites in the battle of Mount Tabor. And indeed, uh, as with the other Israelite tribes, 
Asher hadn't fully driven out the Canaanites from their own territorial uh, allotment, but they had allowed them to stay and become a sort of thorn in the side. Now, Deborah's condemnation of Asher is found in Judges 5 verse 17, which reads, quote, Gilead abode beyond Jordan, and why did Dan remain in ships? Asher continued on the seashore and abode in his breaches, end quote. Now, breaches means coves, landings, harbors. So this is all a reference to Asher's tribal allotment. And there's a, a, an interesting parallel here because Asher's tribal allotment parallels pretty nicely the territory of Belgium today. Asher was given a chunk of territory running along Israel's northern coast of the Mediterranean Sea, a straight strip along the coast there. And this land was at the northern end of Israel's coastal plain, quite fertile with harbors, coves, straight-stretching beaches. And so this matches pretty nicely with the territory of Belgium, uh, following a coastal plain beach line of, of northern Europe, beautifully fertile, even land. Anciently, the tribe of Asher bordered Zebulun, and today Belgium borders the Netherlands, the modern-day tribe of Zebulun, and uh, together uh, they share a close partnership in, in many ways. Right, we'll take a short break there, and following that we'll briefly discuss the migration of the Israelites up into Europe and talk a little bit about Asher's future. This is Watch Jerusalem, where history and prophecy come alive. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. For today's program, we're covering the tribe of Asher and their uh, identification as modern-day Belgium. If you're listening live and missed the first part of the program, I'd encourage you to go online and check out the first half of this podcast on watchjerusalem.co.il. That first half, again, examining the characteristic prophecies uh, for the tribe of Asher what their national European identity would be in the last days. For this last segment of the program, though, we'll briefly step back and explain the Israelite migration into Europe, how these tribes, the Lost Ten Tribes, ended up constituting several of the major nations in Western Europe. Now, after Assyria's defeat of the Kingdom of Israel during the late 8th century BCE, The tribes were uprooted and they were led away captive. So where did they go? Bible prophecy makes it clear. Jeremiah 31 verse 8 states that the Israelites would end up in the countries to the north, the coasts, and the ends of the earth, i.e. the Commonwealth nations such as South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand. Isaiah 49 verse 12 affirms that they would largely be found northwest of Palestine. Multiple scriptures make mention of end-time Israel among the Isles. So what large territory is located in the northwest of the Holy Land, to the northwest of the Holy Land, with coasts, with isles, with control of the dominions at the ends of the earth? Of course, it's Western Europe, the British Isles, and Scandinavia. Now, one of the early leaders of the northern kingdom of Israel was King Omri, and he was a well-respected general. It was he who established the new uh, capital of the northern kingdom in Samaria. And as such, along with the term Israel, the northern kingdom also generally became known as the house of Omri. Judah became known as the house of David, the northern kingdom of Israel, the house of Omri. This, was, this term was used by foreigners, notably by Assyria, in referring to Israel, Bet Omri, House of Omri. However, the name Omri is pronounced slightly different than the English. It has a glottal stop consonant before the O. There's no English alternative to that. And so as such, the Assyrians called them Qumri, 
So these captive Israelites of Bet Qumri, the house of Omri, these captive Israelites were carried out to the northeast as slaves of the Assyrian Empire. Now the Bible states that these Assyrian, uh, the, sorry, these Israelite captives were sent to the faraway land of the Medes in northwest Iran. The Assyrians had a tendency for for distant deportations of their captives. It would help break any link with their homeland, and that's certainly what happened to the lost ten tribes. And it's explains why the Qumri, the Israelites, ended up so far away. Now, it's around this point in secular history that we see a civilization on the scene known as the Khmerians, pronounced uh, similarly to Qumri. Qumri, and from this general area, we, we see the emergence of the Khmerians. These people are known to have migrated up into Asia Minor, and they're believed to have come from the region of Iran. Now, one reason for their continued northwestern migration might have been uh, the the overthrows going on in the Middle East, the overthrow of the Assyrian Empire by the Babylonians, because the the Assyrians also ended up uh, moving out, migrating out of their homeland, and then this uh, driving the uh, Israelites, the Qumri, even further. So the Cimmerians were known to the Greeks, uh, to the Greeks as Kimeroi. The Babylonians called them Gimiri. Historians have also connected the Welsh term Qumri to them. So these people then became what are commonly known as the Celts. They are the Kimri, the Kimbri, the Gimiri, the Qumri, the Celtic people. Various different names, similarly pronounced uh, but different names as they're named by different countries, the Celtic people. And even today, the Celtic country of Wales is referred to in the Welsh language as Cymru. Now, history shows that these early Celts migrated across Europe, conquering and establishing themselves on the continent and in the Isles. So not only does the, the passage name and time frame match so too do the practices. The, the religious and legal order of the Celts was dominated by the Druids, the pagan Druids, and this class of people, the Druids, actually resembles quite closely the priestly class of the pagan Israelites in the Promised Land. And you can hear more detail about all of this on our program on the tribe of Reuben. Now, there isn't much we can say about the specific migration of the tribe of Asher, apart from an interesting uh, speculation here. You might have heard of the Aesir, a group of gods described in North mytho- Norse mythology, uh, mythology <laughs> tongue twister there, uh, alongside the god Odin. Now, the, the world-renowned Norwegian explorer and scientist Thor Heyerdahl, he believed that the Aesir... Uh, it's spelled with that, that A-E, uh, blended letter, A-E-I-S-I-R, Acer. He believed them to be a real group of people behind the myth, a real group of people, the Acer, who migrated up into Western Europe from the region of the Black Sea. Heyerdahl got this largely from a 13th century account called, now I'm going to butcher this as well, Yinglinga Saga, the, the Yinglinga Saga. And as such, he undertook a series of archaeological ex, uh, excavations right up till the year 2002 when he died uh, in the attempt to try and find the historicity to the Acer people. So their, their identification as gods in mythology wouldn't be surprising. Similarly, the Danans who invaded Ireland, the tribe of Dan, the Danans, they too were regarded as gods. So as the theory goes, we have the, this group known as Acer, who had been located around the Black Sea, the same general area that the Israelites ended up following their deportation. And these Acerites, shall we say, they apparently traveled northwest via Saxon homelands into what is now northern Germany. Now, of course, the, the Nordic mythology continues that, that these gods ended up in Sweden, uh, but the name link and the indicated direction of their migration is interesting, and it could have been 
Uh, this could have been part of a wider group in which a tribe called Asher, Asher, made up a part, traveling up into northwest Europe, the perhaps the Asher staying in the region of Belgium, while certain other tribes, uh, other gods, you could say in the mythological term, continued north. So this this well-known Norse mythology, uh, after all, it isn't only relevant to the countries of Scandinavia. It was also found in, in various forms on the European mainland among the pagan Celts. Now, Julius Caesar made an interesting note about the Belgian Celts. He divided the, the Celts in general into three large groups, and he made a note that the Belgae Celts, that they were the bravest of the three. And the note of bravery is pretty interesting when, when you put it alongside the Bible. There's a sort of a footnote passage about the genealogy of the tribe of Asher found in First Chronicles 7 verse 40. And this passage reads, quote, All these were the children of Asher, heads of their father's house, choice and mighty men of valor, chief of the princes. Mighty men of valor. Mighty men of valor. Now, the Hebrew word for valor means just that, valor, but it actually comes from a root meaning to writhe, to twist in pain, to be in anguish, to suffer. And that is certainly the case with Belgium. She's a little country that, in living memory, has been steamrolled twice, suffering uh, to, to a huge degree in the two world wars. But in that suffering, in her suffering, she has shown great valor. And such was the case in World War II, for example. You have the free Belgian forces, the Belgian resistance, and the public strikes against the German occupation. Again, not an outwardly militaristic nation, but when it uh, came to a near-futile defense of their homeland against a pretty monstrous enemy, the Belgians did show real valor in that suffering. But now we come to modern-day Belgium. Again, a wealthy country known primarily for its food, for its delicacies. Belgium is, shall we say, back to normal size. It no longer controls the Congo, uh, which it relinquished in the 60s. Deuteronomy 33, after all, says that Asher would dip his foot in oil. So maybe here there is a link, briefly dipping in and then out, as with the Congo. But what of Belgium's? What of Luxembourg's? What of Asher's future? The Bible does have a lot to say about Israel's future as a whole. And in the short term, it isn't good. Numerous end-time prophecies condemn our increasingly liberal societies for turning away from God. And uh, Belgium is no exception. It, it is a peaceful, happy, beautiful country. But you don't have to dig too far beneath the surface to see that interior rottenness. Belgium uh, became the first nation in the world to legalize child euthanasia. The, the bill passed in 2014 in the Belgian parliament with relative ease, granting children, regardless of their age, the right to demand their own death. Now, Belgium also has a big business in prostitution. Most cities have a, a red light district. There's an estimate of uh, getting towards 30,000 prostitutes in the country, and that's a huge number for such a tiny country. Uh, if you're in America, a country smaller than Maryland uh, with a population of only 11.5 million. Uh, in 2015, prostitution made for an economic turnover of nearly 1 billion euros. So it's a big business, uh, you could say, in Belgium. And then following the Netherlands, Belgium became the second country in the world to legalize homosexual marriage, going back as far as 2003 for that. And as the biblical Asherites were, were anciently condemned for rolling over and allowing the enemy Canaanite pockets to, to live and develop in their land, the same can be said for modern-day Belgium, which has a massive problem with Islamic extremism and has suffered repeated terrorist attacks. And this is thanks to allowing virtually ungovernable Islamic areas to grow in the country. 
As such, Jeremiah 30 verse 7 prophecy prophesies uh, of a coming tribulation on Belgium, on, on our fellow Israelite nations, and it says, quote, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, end quote. Calamity coming upon the children of Jacob, the tribes of Israel, particularly the birthright nations, Britain and the United States, and that scepter nation of Judah, but also on the other Israelite nations, such as France, Belgium, the Netherlands, etc. And that's because our people have forsaken God. Daniel 12 verse 1 says that, quote, There shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. End quote. The worst time of suffering ever on this earth. So God is seeking repentance from his people, and the world is prophesied to be once more oppressed by a powerful German-led European superpower uh, that will, will usher in World War III. And of course, the Belgian, Belgians know from their history better than most just what that means. But there is hope. There is hope for Israel, hope for repentance, hope for the prophesied return of the Messiah to save our peoples from destruction, hope for Belgian repentance, because this too is described of biblical Asher. Second Chronicles 30 describes King Hezekiah's invitation to the Israelites of the north to come to Jerusalem and worship the true God, and his letters were met with largely with ridicule, but as verse 11 says of Second Chronicles 30, quote, Nevertheless, divers of Asher and Manasseh and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. And following that national future humbling, prophecies throughout the Bible reveal that the tribes of Israel, under the leadership of the Messiah, will reach greater status of power, riches, and, you could say for Asher, royal delicacies than ever before. Thanks for joining us. Till next time.